Hello and welcome to uh, Hudson Institute. My name is uh, Jonas Paul Plessner. I'm a senior fellow here at Hudson Institute. And uh, thanks to all of you for um, uh, joining me in this panel here for uh, the launch of the, of the report that you all have here in your, see at least a lot have gotten it, if not already, uh, outside about the Chinese Communist Party foreign interference operations, how the US and other democracies should respond. Um, I'm joined here for this uh, debate today with a, with a great panel as well. Um, we're waiting for one of the panelists. As you can see, there are three um, uh, chairs, but I will use the time meanwhile here to, um, to introduce um, our other panelists. Um, so I'm joined by Bethany Allen Braminian, who is um, a national security um, reporter at the Daily Beast until last week with uh, foreign policy, and who really has been tracking sort of Chinese um, interference operations um, here in the US. Uh, I hope if you haven't already, you should definitely follow her reporting so that she has uncovered everything from um, Chinese Communist Party cells at American universities um, to many other uh, topics going on in, in civil society uh, with these type of influences. So um, um, Bethany, why don't you join me up here? And, and when he is... Um, Due to arrive, the, our third panelist uh, is Mike uh, Pillsbury, who is um, director here at, um, at Hudson Institute for China, who is a long-standing um, China hand, who has written the, um, the great book, The 100 Years Marathon, that I really recommend um, on uh, China and its uh, long-term strategic aims. Um, he's just been texting that he was in an Uber with, uh, that seemed to be involved in an accident. So I hope it's, it's not serious, and we'll have him soon here on the, on the panel with us. But we also thought we wouldn't want to keep uh, you guys waiting. So I wanted to, um, to uh, give us a, a head start. So the run of the show will be the following. I'll first sort of re uh, present the report, uh, its main findings and recommendations. Then I'll um, uh, ask Bethany and, and Mike to give their sort of short uh, comments uh, on, on the report and on the topic. Then we will go into a discussion on that, and then we will gradually bring the rest of you, the whole audience, into uh, the discussion as well. So if I um, start out here on the, um, the report, let me um, first of all importantly credit my, uh, my co-author, Belinda Lee, who is, um, who is a research associate here at uh, the Hudson Institute, and uh, who did a tremendous uh, sort of work on, uh, on this report as well, and on um, it's just the writing, but we actually had the sort of strategic uh, working group um, on these issues where I see several in the, in the audience who have been part of that and where we've had people pass through um, Washington, D.C. from Australia, New Zealand, and, and speaking about um, United Front influence in these countries as well. Um, so uh, a big thanks to, uh, to Belinda, um, who is uh, happily on vacation somewhere in... Uh, in uh, Singapore, I think it is. But um, let me start here with this sort of first slide. And there's basically um, a couple of things that uh, this is also in the report I want to kick us off with on this one here. It's basically that the Chinese Communist Party is at the core of the, of the Chinese party state and also the decision-making processes. That's why we have it in sort of in the middle, and uh, we try to show both how they're sort of party uh, organs and at the same time government organs, but that it's basically 
the Chinese Communist Party that sort of um, the running uh, core and nerve system of in the Chinese uh, system. Um, and the Chinese, uh, the CCP, is uh, looking at, by changing how democracy speak and think about the People's Republic of China, is basically trying to sort of make the world safe for its continued um, rule. And that's also really a priority of, of sort of the United Front um, strategy. With the United States, the, the goal is a long-term interference and influence campaign that uh, tames American power and freedoms in part by limiting and neutralizing American democratic discussions about the Chinese Communist Party, um, particularly since liberal values such as freedom of expression, individual rights, academic freedom are uh, anathema to the party and its internal system of operations. Um, the second point is that there's been a resurgence of uh, United Front work on the Xi Jinping. Um, United Front might sound to most of you quite sort of quaint and what is that, and for some it might ring bells of Cold War history of, of something the, the Soviets did with uh, peace organizations in the 70s. In China, it's, it's been a sort of integral part of the, um, of the Chinese system dating back to sort of um, cooperation uh, with the Kuomintang. Uh, but the system has been sort of maintained and actually been um, had a sort of revitalization on the on the Xi Jinping and is part of, of China's sort of broader strategy of, of uh, influence abroad and it's a way of creating uh, networks um, and ties both inside China but just as, uh, as much outside uh, outside China. Um, that is. Um, a challenge for democracies. I mean, as I mentioned, this is something where there's a long-term commitment by the, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, if you look at sort of the broader frame of, of influence abroad, it's estimated that uh, the Chinese put around 10 US billion in, into that. Um, so it's, it's um, a well-resourced uh, well system. Um, and uh, China has sort of shown the capacity to uh, put pressure both on, on um, uh, dissenting democratic governments and individuals. I mean, the two I would just mention would be Norway over the Nobel um, Peace Prize given to Liu Xiaobo and the way uh, China was able to sort of uh, put Norway into the diplomatic freezer and, and use economics uh, sanction. Um, another recent example here would be if you, you read um, the news uh, these last days, I think it was in Washington Post, Teng Biao, a human rights lawyer who is now in, in the US still writing about how he feels sort of harassed and, and managed even, even living here in the US. Um, so what happens here is that with, um, with a lot of money and often with the help of, of Western enablers, uh, the Chinese Communist Party can use money rather than communist ideology as a powerful source of uh, influence, uh, creating uh, what we'll look at in different cases, these sort of parasitic relationships of long-term uh, dependence. Um, you can contrast that as well with, with, I would say, with Russia, which is sort of uh, a lot of the talk of the town of Russia's interference uh, operation, but which are much more focused on, on disruption and disruption in, the, in, in democracy, whereas here with China, it's much more about limiting the debate inside democracies and not sort of fundamentally discredit in the same way as, as Russia uh, is seeking to. Um, so the takeaway from that one, uh, the Chinese Communist Party at the core, United Front, uh, is, is increasing. We see these sort of spheres of influence uh, of, of how 
it's a system of, of using many sort of different organizations, both on the party side, on the state side, and inside and outside of uh, China. And finally, that it's a sort of long-term challenges for, uh, for democracies. Then I just wanted to mention a little bit from um, here in the first case, Australia, but Australia and New Zealand. Uh, these two countries have really been, uh, over the last one year and a half, what had sparked the whole debate, uh, renewed debate about uh, United Front and, and Chinese uh, interference operations abroad. Um, in Australia, um, individuals connected to China's United Front organization, uh, such as the Australian Council for the Promotion of the Peaceful Reunification of China, have donated nearly uh, 5.5 million to Australian political parties since 2008. Um, the case I think that most maybe have heard of in, in the press as well was uh, when Huang uh, Shangmu uh, was uh, withdrawing, uh, or first of all, his big donations that were discovered to the Labour uh, Senator Sam Dastari, and, and um, Dastari that seemed at an occasion to almost read aloud from a position paper on the South China Sea uh, that sounded completely like as if it was written in, uh, in Beijing. Um, and so that was really what sort of got the ball rolling in Australia to, uh, to look more deeply into, uh, into these relationships. And there's been a host of other uh, cases with, uh, with enablers inside the, the Chinese, uh, inside the Australian system. What has happened then, though, uh, which is maybe the, the promising uh, part, is, is a sort of democratic uh, backlash against this, and the Turnbull government has introduced uh, several new laws, um, the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Bill, the Espionage Foreign Influence Bill, and the Electoral Funding and Disclosure Reform Bill. Um, and there's been a real sort of effort by um, media uh, in Australia to, uh, to highlight sort of these cases, and uh, we didn't particularly highlight the work of, uh, of John Gano, who we've also hosted here at um, at the Hudson Institute, and that I knew from uh, from Beijing as a as a great sort of China journalist, and who returned to Australia and, and suddenly started seeing all these other connections uh, between China and Australia, and and um, set about to unravel them. Um, the other case is, and there was just to mention now that you see the book title over here, "Silent Invasion" by Clive Hamilton. Um, whom we also had visiting Hudson uh, recently. I mean, that book uh, was controversial in many uh, ways and, and most important for our discussion today because um, Clive Hamilton's usual publishers suddenly drew out, uh, out of publishing the book and with sort of implicit reference to, uh, um, to uh, worry of retaliation from, uh, from Beijing. So it became almost a sort of whole case of academic freedom in Australia, whether Clive Hamilton could even get this book sort of published in Australia. It came out, and um, um, and it's also really good uh, depiction of sort of Chinese uh, influence uh, in Australia. New Zealand, um, somewhat uh, similar um, uh, situation, uh, both with the mix of. Um, uh, people from the Chinese diaspora and, and sort of New, New Zealand enablers of, of Chinese uh, influence. I mean, the, the big sort of media case has been around Jian um, uh, Jiang, who is a member of, uh, of the New Zealand parliament, but uh, who didn't initially disclose that he'd also sort of worked for the Chinese uh, uh, military intelligence as a language trainer and been a member of the, of the, of the Communist Party. 
um, so that has put a lot of questions about sort of uh, uh, Chinese influence in New Zealand. The reaction has been Anne-Marie Brady, whose work I really recommend, Magic Weapons, on, on New Zealand. Uh, she's also been um, uh, sort of really uncovering United Front in, in New Zealand. Um, but the reaction in New Zealand has been way more sort of tepid than in Australia, and there hasn't actually been a lot of debate. I would say the first high-level reaction was really when Anne-Marie Brady um, had several burglaries, both at home and at, at her university of, of sort of stolen hard disk, that there was uh, somewhat of a sort of um, focus on uh, how does China sort of reach into a New Zealand society. Um, but both cases, I would say, highlight sort of the level of, um, of uh, potential for, um, for influence, and in particularly, of course, that what is exploited is other different vulnerabilities in the system. So the fact that, that the campaign finance law uh, were, um, almost in Australia's case, close to non-existent around, um, around foreign money. In New Zealand, there, there, are, there are rules, but there are also exemptions that make it relatively easy to uh, uh, it's, of course, those vulnerabilities that are exploited uh, for these type of operations. Um, this is also part of the report here. We made this sort of uh, red spectrum of political uh, influence and interference. Um, our idea was basically, and, and let me credit one that's down here, Peter Wood, who helped us to design this one here, um, was basically to sort of show on a scale that you, you had interference as sort of the the worst, the most red part, uh, ranging from sort of espionage, bribes, corruption, uh, political contributions um, towards overseas party cells, United Front uh, organization, and to sort of um, willing enablers. That so there is a sliding scale between some of these things. Some of them are clearly, uh, in most uh, democratic, including you, as illegal. When and then, but then there's a, a whole host of other actions that are harder to define and either are in the gray area or are maybe, it may be legal, but just you can question whether they, um, it's a good thing that, that they happen. So that's basically what we are trying to do there. And we are trying to say um, interference used, actually in uh, the Australians, which came up with this definition of interference as the sort of the three Cs when it's corrupt, co coercive, and um, covered. And whereas influence, it's closer to sort of soft power, and some of that can be out in the open. So when there's a Confucius Institute, um, it's pretty open that the funding does come from the, the Chinese government and the, and, and the Chinese system. It can slide back into sort of interference if you didn't have by the back door um, a sort of undermining, for example, of academic freedom. Uh, then you would put it in, in, in a different category. But that's basically what we, um, we've been trying to sort of track and show with this. Um, uh, another example would be the difference between China Daily, which clearly is a, is a state-run newspaper. So if you, you read that, you know that, and you know how the financing, compared to um, CI, China Radio International, um, which is another state-run media outlet, but which employs these sort of semi-covered leasing models to obscure ownership, uh, and that would then in our view, fit better into the interference category. Um, so looking at, at, at the US, um, we sort of did a little bit of a health check on some of the different uh, areas. And um, on campaign and finance, I mean, the big um, 
case uh, still was, of course, uh, during 96, the so-called sort of China Gate during uh, Bill Clinton's uh, re-election campaign, both on Congress and on uh, presidential elections. It's actually quite interesting, in, so I would throw that out as a recommendation to reread uh, the, the congressional report from that time, and particularly when, uh, as I had just uh, done, gone through the Australia and New Zealand cases, it's it seems very much sort of rerun of the same uh, methods uh, just at a sort of earlier uh, period. And, um, but that doesn't mean that the vulnerabilities that were um, uh, evident at that time that they are now gone and in, um, in, uh, uh, in the current climate there are still sort of uh, definitely uh, areas there that need scrutiny. It's particularly on, on social welfare organizations, um, which uh, whether donors are anonymous and, um, uh, and where there is a possibility of, of funneling um, illegal foreign money. The same with um, LLCs that are similarly sort of anonymous and can also sort of spend on political, um, uh, political campaigns. Um, and then again, as I, I, I mentioned earlier, there's just a lot of sort of the, on our spectrum of the, the sort of the gray zone. I think one of the cases I would mention um, is um, uh, Wang Wenliang, who is a, a green card holder, but at the same time also a member of the National People's Congress in China, um, and who um, spent considerably on sort of lobbying and donating to uh, political candidates here in the, in the US. It might, again, technically, be, uh, be legal as a, uh, as a green card holder, but of course does pose a question if you're at the same time um, also occupying a sort of political high-level function in um, an authoritarian system. What I, we wanted to, s to say with this is really that sort of um, that it's, it's also just as much in every um, democracy, it's willing enablers by businessmen and companies that, that end up in different ways also helping um, China promote its narrative in the US and, uh, and, and abroad. Um, and um, So, I mean, among those, you have allegations of corruption by proxy, where Western enablers get paid through less traceable funding for family members. Another method is for politicians to sell their houses to connections or mysterious third parties for above market uh, prices. In such cases, it's hard to discern the innocent from the nefarious. Um, as Peter Mattis, who is uh, also somebody I would really recommend on, on these issues, um, he has noted in one of his articles, from then ambassador to China, Gary Locke's rush sale of his Maryland home to Chinese business people, to the trademark grants to Ivanka Trump or her husband's back channeling to Beijing. The activity may be completely innocent or routine, or it may be something more devious. The surface level indicators are the same. And basically, the message I would then add to that, in each case, we would then try to sort of scratch beneath the surface of, um, of, uh, of what goes on. On um, academic freedom, um, I would just start by mentioning, I mean, that, that China increasingly uses access to China for, for academics that study China as, as a sort of 
powerful tool of leverage of whether can you get into China or can you do research on this topic or not. We've seen that particularly on, on Xinjiang over the last um, couple of years that has become a really sensitive uh, topic for the Chinese Communist Party and which they sort of try to uh, uh, as much as possible shape their own uh, narrative and where it's uh, getting hard for uh, independent researchers from the US and other places that want to uh, come in and, and, re and research this. Um, and on the other hand, then, um, Chinese uh, scholars, institutions have, of, of course, uh, full access to the US and other uh, democracies. Um, and one of the things here that uh, we looked at the report um, and that Bethany has also done uh, quite a, some good uh, research on is the CSSA, which are these sort of Chinese student association chapters at university, and um, uh, where there are about 150 uh, chapters on uh, all around the, the US. And very often have some kind of, of link or contact with the Chinese embassies and consulates um, and would uh, sort of help at uh, often promoting the party line. For example, when the Dalai Lama was invited to, uh, to speak at the UC, uh, UCSD's commencement in 2017, uh, the school's uh, CSSA chapter threatened tough measures to resolutely resist the school's unreasonable behavior. Um, and um, but just as much uh, you've seen in some cases as well, where there's been a direct sort of link, uh, even also financial, with uh, the Chinese embassies and, uh, and consulates. Um, then there's the question of um, Chinese financial ties to US universities, which prompts questions about academic freedom. Um, for example, as prestigious a school as Stanford University received 32 million in monetary gifts from China over the past six years, Harvard received uh, 55 million through a combination of contracts and monetary gifts. Um, then there are these Confucius Institute, here is the last part. Um, the United States has more Confucius Institutes, 107, I think is, is the last count, and Confucius classrooms, uh, 501, than any other nations. Um, and um, the way these uh, Confucius Institutes, which are Chinese language programs, they're housed at American universities and subsidized by the Chinese government uh, funds. They are run by the Hanban, uh, an office of the um, Office of Chinese Language Council International, which is affiliated with um, the Chinese Ministry of Education. Um, and in a telling quote, uh, the uh, Chang Chun, then head of propaganda for the CCP in 2009, called Confucius Institute an important part of China's overseas propaganda setup. Um, and as part of that set up abroad, uh, Confucius Institute makes sure the foreign institution must provide a venue uh, and evidence of adequate equipment and personnel to host the Confucius Institute. And this sort of parasitic arrangement with local institutes of, of learning is, is quite unique. I mean, other countries have state-funded language institutes. There's not necessarily anything nefarious with that, such as the French Alliance Française or the German Schröder Institute. But they do not necessarily rely on that they have to be embedded sort of inside another uh, academic host where it can pose the question in which there has been example of that either individual teachers or the Confucius Institute as a whole then also try to influence if there are sort of China critical um, events at the university. Um, then there's the question of um, 
of where we're standing now today here in the think tanks and uh, and how that's also being uh, being influenced. Uh, I would mention a, a couple of, of examples. The Institute for China-American Studies, ECAS, uh, whose website states as an independent nonprofit think tank funded by the Hainan Nanhai Research Foundation in China. The foundation, however, belongs to the National Institute for South China Sea Studies, which is a government-affiliated research institution that plays a prominent role in promoting China's view on maritime issues. And um, a colleague from uh, CFR, Elizabeth Economy, I think I put it pretty clearly, ICAS is not a think tank, but a channel for a propaganda. Um, similarly, there's been question around uh, QCEF, which is uh, the United, uh, China United States Exchange Foundation run by, uh, by uh, Mr. Tung, um, who also served as the first uh, chief executive of Hong Kong. And um, Kuzev, on the other hand, has rightly sort of registered under FARA since uh, Tung serves as vice chairman of the CPCC, one of the most important United Front entities. And uh, in an example, in January 2018, the University of Texas at Austin rejected Tung's offer to fund the school's China Public Policy Center after um, Senator Ted Cruz sent the university a letter warning that uh, accepting QCEP money could allow China to spread propaganda and compromise the university's credibility. Um, and then there's the question of, of influence in, in English uh, language press. Um, I would um, highlight a couple of cases. One uh, on uh, Forbes, um, where a Hong Kong-based investment group integrated whale media, purchased a majority stake in Forbes media. Since then, some reporters have noticed that it's incre increasingly difficult to publish stories that's uh, criticizing China and Forbes. Um, Secondly, uh, China Daily, the English uh, language newspaper of the CCP, has paid for insert in major news outlets such as the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, and Financial Times since 2011. Um, the Washington Post and Wall Street Journal still publish these inserts, and the journal also has content from Xinhua and the China Messenger uh, feature. The trained reader notices the health warning label about a paid advertisement. But others might not know that these inserts are in reality sort of pure Communist Party propaganda. The ads bring in substantial revenues, which may, may make it difficult for uh, cash-strapped uh, US news companies to wean themselves off this, again, sort of parasitic uh, relationship. Um, and then finally, um, there's been a co-optation of Chinese uh, language media. And um, Beijing has sought to influence Chinese language media in America in several ways by taking them over and adding loyal party members to the rank, buying advertising space to make them economically dependent on China, and if there's still recalcitrant, then pressuring business advertisers with economic interest in China to abandon advertising uh, in them. This, that situation is comparable for television, where it's estimated that um, China Central Television controls about 75% of Chinese language uh, television stations in, in uh, North America. And then last but not least, there are these sort of opaque ownership structures as well that I mentioned with uh, CRI, China Radio International, and local radio stations across the US. Um, for example, there in 2015, Reuters uh, did some really good investigative journalism that discovered that CRI um, in, is the majority stakeholder in 33 um, radio stations uh, in, four, uh, in 14 countries, though many are ostensibly run by expatriate Chinese business people. And according to that same report, CRI is the majority shareholder behind broadcasts in important American cities, including Washington, Philadelphia, Boston, Houston, and San Francisco.
Um, this one here is just a couple of pictures or so, also um, showing sort of the effort at United Front Influence into sort of Chinese diaspora in, um, in the US. And this is something I'm sure Bethany is also going to be, uh, be picking up on. Um, so we have here the Chinese American Alliance for China's Peaceful Unification that are selling Defend Diaoyu um, Island merchandise. Um, which are the contested island between um, China and, and Japan. And we have in the other photo the Consul General um, of China in San Francisco, who is attending the handover ceremony of the old and new president of the Northern California Chinese Association for Peaceful uh, Unification. And I think so, these just sort of also show how uh, um, official. China government and party sort of penetrate into these uh, organizations um, as well. And of course, citizens of the United States uh, enjoy sort of full First Amendment free speech uh, rights. And simply voicing views that are congenial to the Chinese Communist Party is, of course, at all not a crime. Uh, but it's different with sort of concealing uh, the involvement of a foreign authoritarian government in political activities intended to influence American public opinion. And, and of course, there's a sort of heavy pressure on the Chinese diaspora and, uh, and dissidents and organizations that are critical uh, to China also inside, uh, inside the US. I don't know if some, if some of you were here earlier, which I was since it's my office, but at, at 12, there was this big uh, Falun Dafa uh, demonstration that passed through um, uh, Pennsylvania uh, Avenue, and, and it's, of course, uh, for organizations such as the Falun Gong, I mean, even doing this in, in the US often comes with a lot of sort of counter reactions from um, organizations that are um, loyal to, uh, to Beijing. Then let me go to the, the recommendations um, that one is, is would be um, increased transparency and awareness. Uh, so we basically, this is part of why we did the report. This is part of why we are doing this as a, as a public launch as well, to, to, to talk about this, saying, I mean, this is no longer just some sort of quaint thing from the, the Cold War, talking about United Front. It's actually something that uh, ordinary citizens need to be uh, aware of. And it's something that where those links between really great uh, China journalists that have covered China inside, and then uh, those links back into um, into democratic society, which is why it's um, so great that there are people like John Gano, like uh, Bethany. But I mean, we need uh, many more. Um, second sort of overall recommendation is about democratically empowered Chinese diaspora communities, um, because the United Front is all the time sort of saying that that that, that all Chinese also abroad are still parts of sons and daughters of the, of the motherland. They're like almost casting a sort of cloud of suspicion on them. It's about reversing that narrative and actually saying democratic societies need to protect their citizens um, and take particular care to treat United Front operation targeting their own Chinese diasporas, not merely as a counterintelligence challenge, but also as a deliberate and dangerous threat to those communities. Um, so that should be a sort of special focus. And then. Um, Last, as a general recommendation, build democratic resilience. That in reality, what makes this sort of Chinese system efficient is the fact that that there are enough willing Western enablers that that in different ways um, 
help the Chinese out and is motivated often by uh, e economic uh, motives. Um, so, um, so then we have some sort of more specific uh, recommendation that um, the National Security Council, um, which also seemed to flow from the, the, the recent national security strategy, should undertake a whole of government project to map the full spectrum of uh, CCP interference and influence, which is where sort of our um, mapping was a way of trying to say of how you should distinguish between sort of nefarious from uh, the more innocuous, and then look at what are sort of the different counter tools. Is it counterintelligence and law enforcement when we over in the completely red area? Um, is it uh, something you need legislation for? Is it uh, something where it's much more sort of civil society or a code of conduct? If we're talking about academic freedom, then it should rather be universities that maybe jointly make a code of conduct on, on how to deal with this. Um, then secondly, suggested, which is also really the first step here today, is, is that think tanks, civil society together should make a united fund tracker, basically trying to make some sort of measurements in now that we've seen it both in Australia, New Zealand, US and elsewhere and, and, and Europe of how to really sort of measure uh, this a little bit in the same way as, as some organization measure the level of uh, freedom in a country or the, the world competitiveness. There should be a sort of united front uh, tracker. Um, the next suggestion is that Congress uh, could mandate a sort of annual um, FBI-led publicly disseminated intelligence report on United Front interference uh, and influence operations, and add that with sort of practical advice for ordinary citizens on how to uh, to spot this and, um, and and avoid being entangled in it. Um, and then, more broadly, the the United States and other democracies in a community of democracy setting or in a uh, other informal fora should sort of work. Um, together and, and both monitor and, and develop tools to sort of counteract this type of interference. Um, so those are some of the sort of the overall uh, recommendations. And um, let me just mention, because then we have underneath, which you can see in the report, um, some very sort of um, specific uh, ones in each sector. I'm not going to highlight all of those. I just want to bring out one from each section. On campaign finance and pop, uh, political integrity, um, I think the one that to ensure that illicit foreign money is not used in U.S. elections and does not enter the political system. Transparency requirements should be imposed on donors to anonymous companies, LLCs, and social welfare organizations. And the FEC and Justice Department should step up uh, enforcement of that. On news media, um, uh, private sector philanthropy should prioritize grants and scholarship designated to strengthen independent journalist capacity to investigate and report on United Fund activities in the United States and other democracies. And then both private and public funding should be secured for independent Chinese news and, uh, and television, um, particularly also to radio uh, free Asia. The United States should work with international uh, democratic partners, again, in a type of community of democracy setting to um, establish independent uh, Chinese media. Um, I mean, the issue here, as I mentioned earlier, is really that if you're a Chinese-speaking in most um, Western democratic countries, it's almost hard not to get news that are basically uh, run out of, uh, out of Beijing. So it's, it's sort of a, 
I think, a priority to, to make sure that there are also some sources in Chinese language that are not um, in that way controlled. Higher education and think tanks. Um, we suggest private and public funding for independent China-related research and Chinese language instruction that um, <coughs> should be increased. And that no such funding should be dispersed to any schools that host a Confucius Institute. Just a second. that was the Confucius Institute or Confucius um, classroom. I think that's also too, because as already been the debate about Confucius Institute, is that many of the reasons why particularly smaller universities see them as a boon is the fact that they provide Chinese language uh, training. And if no such alternative from either public or private funding are available, then it's quite understandable. That, uh, that this seems like a great option. Um, so that's why the, our, our recommendation is shaped in the way that you should link it to saying that if you could get extra public or private funding for this type of Chinese independent language, then you should not have a Confucius Institute um, at the same time. But that actually then offers an alternative, not just saying um, shut them all down without providing some sort of uh, alternative route to actually learning Chinese, which is uh, really important. Um, and then last, uh, I wanted to mention on sort of Chinese, or the recommendation on Chinese diaspora communities, uh, where we suggest that, that the DOJ, that could be a unit that would be established to focus on the right of uh, dissidents and critics of China in the diaspora community, and this could be sort of done by leveraging civil rights uh, type of legislation of, <coughs> again, like in the general recommendations, um, saying that this is basically a way of sort of empowering um, citizens and making sure that they are not subjected to sort of harassment from uh, authoritarian government outside of the country. So let me conclude, so uh, Bethany and I can open up. This report sort of marks only a first step in unearthing a Communist Party interference in the United States. And elsewhere, it's based on informal talks with this excellent group of uh, scholars, journalists, think tankers, civil society activists, and former and current um, administration officials. This work continues, and many more need to join in. So in uncovering United Front strategy in action will be a continuous effort, which is also why we recommended launching this United Front tracker um, as such a joint effort. So with that, I will um, jump down here on uh, my seat, and I think Mike, unfortunately, seemed to have been in a, in a real Uber accident. So it looks like it's, it's just me and, uh, and Bethany who are on the stage. So don't mind the empty chair. It's not like Leo Shovel. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, Bethany, over to you. Uh, is this on? Is this on? Yeah. Yes. Um, thank you, Jonas, for that uh, great presentation. And, and really, thank you for this report. I have been waiting for there to be a report on Chinese influence and United Front activity in the United States. I've been waiting for that report for a long time. Um, when I write about you know, United Front affiliated people uh, and organizations, oftentimes my editor will be like, well, Bethany, can you just put in a link here you know, that just sort of introduces for our readers you know, US activity, United Front activity in the US? And I'm like, no, I can't. There are literally zero links about this. There is no report. So this is the first publicly available report. I'm presuming you're going to put it online, please. Um, so that now I will be able to say, yes, you know, I can actually link to something that, that gives a, a great introduction to United Front activity and Chinese influence in the United States. 
this particular, uh, what, with what you've done here, um, it's a great roadmap, both for the different kinds of influence and interference that the Chinese Communist Party uh, does in the United States, and it's also a roadmap for what we don't know yet. So, for example, with the, the campaign finance issues, you know, as a journalist reading this, um, I w there were several sections where I thought, ah, I didn't, you know, I didn't realize that this was a loophole. You know, I want to go in and, and do more research here and explore that. Uh, and I think that's exactly what this report, a report like this, should be doing, because we are very early in this discussion and we're very early in our understanding of uh, Chinese influence and interference activities in the U.S. You know, Australia. There's been journalists doing investigative reporting on this for 10 years, particularly John Garneau, Nick McKenzie. Um, but here in the US, we are, we are a little bit behind. Um, or perhaps we're not behind. We're just not right where Australia is. Um, so this is, a, this is a great contribution. I'm just going to keep my re remarks really brief um, and so we can get into questions. And um, <laughs> Thank you. We're, we're glad you're OK. <laughs> Very exciting. Um, so how widespread is this? Uh, as, as someone who has been a China hand for about 14 years now, as I have looked more at United Front and you know PLA, Political Liaison Department, MSS, um, and their, acti their covert activities in the United States, I've realized that it's very widespread. In fact, uh, when I was a student before I became a journalist, when I was applying for internships and, and jobs, uh, I, I made a, a mental list a couple of weeks ago, and I think that most of the places I ended up interning actually have ties to the United Front. Um, I won't name names, maybe I should, but um, so that was kind of a shocking moment for me when I realized that if you're someone like me who knows a lot about China, speaks Chinese, and is interested in you know, US-China relations, it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a minefield out there. Um, you're going to bump into a, a lot of money, a lot of projects, a lot of research projects, and a lot of people whose um, motivations may not be clear. And it's important to understand that. So what, what's the goal of all of this? You know, everything that Jonas outlined and, and Belinda uh, in, their, in their report. Well, for Australia, as they mentioned, it, it's a little bit different for Australia and New Zealand. Uh, their goals, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party's goals there are to isolate, to pull Australia and New Zealand away from the Western-led order, and preferably enter into uh, China's sphere of influence. Now, that's not, that's not China's goal for the US. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party, their goal for the U.S. is not like Russia. It's not to, um, you know, to to cause divisions or to to break us down or to interfere in our you know economy and make us weaker. That's not that's not what the United Front is doing in the U.S. Uh, China wants a strong United States. China wants a prosperous United States. Um, but China wants a strong and prosperous United States that does not get in the way of China's own goals. So you know, if our economy is strong, if we're doing well, and we're participating in China's One Belt One Road and helping you know strengthen Chinese power and influence around the world, that's that's what China wants. So I think it's something that we have to have a conversation about. You know, if if we're going to take action actions and legislative actions um, to try to curtail some of this behavior, what what is that going to look like, and what are we willing to pay? What price are we willing to pay for that in terms of money, you know, in terms of resources, um, in order to stop behavior that, that isn't necessarily 
you know, going to destroy the United States as a country, although I think it, one, one thing that has happened here is that the, the democratic freedoms of the overseas Chinese community have been severely curtailed. Um, so that's, I think, you know, a great uh, debate that Jonas is, is um, helping to, to start here. And so I'll just wrap that up. And I, I wanted to start out with a question, Jonas, for you. One thing that, one thing that people ask me frequently when I am introducing this topic is how is China's influence and interference, how is China's influence different than what the United States does? You know, the United States, you know, funds civic groups in other countries. China doesn't like that. Is there a fundamental difference? I think there is. It's a, it's a great question. And I mean, the difference really is in two things. Is one is, is in the, the form of government, the fact that China is a sort of authoritarian uh, system and not democratic. And then often it's, of course, also in the, what I outlined with the three Cs, the fact that it's, it's done in ways that are either coercive, uh, covered, or, or corrupt. So I mean, I think that would be sort of the, the big different ways. It's not, it's the same when I talked about the Confucian Institute and, and compared it to the Goethe uh, Institute and Alliance Francaise. It's not that there are not other state-run institutions, for example, that do language. Again, here the problem uh, I, I see with the Confucians is the parasitic relationship that you embed yourself in a host nations that become sort of dependent on you also financially. And, and gradually, thereby, you can sort of shape the, the discourse at the place. And that's sort of the big uh, difference. So I would say that's really the big difference. But interestingly, when you pose that question, in the Australia debate, that has also been, when Clive Hamilton was here, a big part of their debate is that a lot of people say, but isn't this just the same as, as the US? And isn't the US also just like shaping our debate? And why is it, is it worse that it's uh, when it's China? And it was quite interesting because Clive Hamilton comes actually from a background of sort of left-wing public intellectual in Australia that has suddenly been bitten here by this sort of China bug issue and taken it on. And he's arguing with a lot of his sort of former colleagues or like-minded on that, saying, no, it's fundamentally different. This is somewhere where they're actually trying to block a book that I cannot publish. There are actually things inside Australia's uh, side you cannot say. I mean, the US, of course, would like Australia to stay as an ally and all these things and would voice those arguments, but that would could take place out in the open in a completely different uh, in a completely different way. So that's I think are really uh, really some of the, the differences. And I would add a point to that. So just something that I think about is you know China often will will uh, present itself as a better you know we're going to be better than the United States. We have a better you know we offer something better to the world. Um, and if the U.S. you know sometimes engages in behavior abroad that many people criticize, I think that you know for China or others to say, oh well, China's just doing the same thing. Well, maybe that's kind of the point. You know, we should hold them to a higher standard as well. Um, another question I have is, is, is why now for this report? I mean, has this been going on just the same for decades? Is there a, a moment you know where you see Chinese influence activities, United Front work, interference? really kind of taking off. I mean, you mentioned in the report that uh, if you try to find out about the United Front, um, you know, some of the resources were written in the 70s or 80s. So you know, wh wh why is there that gap? And why are we talking about this now? Good, two different questions. Why there's a gap in the academic literature is a good question of why that has sort of, I mean, it's really taken up now. And you have good scholars in Australia, Jerry Grote and others that are, but it's true there isn't that, uh, like there wasn't, 
the report maybe for today, there isn't the book, the new recent book about sort of United Front uh, work. So that's definitely just a sort of uh, a lack in the academic space that's out there. I think uh, why now to the broader question? I mean, the mix of, as I highlighted, that, that Xi Jinping has really put influence also on, on sort of the influence abroad on the United Front work. So there's a resurgence inside the Chinese system. At the same time, we're starting to see some of the effects in our democratic system. So we've seen it in Australia, New Zealand. We see it in, in, in Europe as well with, with the way the, the Chinese are able to, uh, to sort of play different European countries. And, uh, and we see it here in the US as, as outlined as well. So I think all these sort of um, reasons together make sort of why now? And then maybe also in this town a little bit as a counterbalance to all the talk all the time about Russia. And I'm saying because Russia, I mean, if you look economically, is sort of the size of uh, Italy and with nuclear weapons, yes. But, um, and whereas China is the world's second largest economy, it continues to grow, it continues to put money into this, has continued to put these sort of develop these long term relationships with business, political elites in all media, in all sort of uh, Western democratic countries. Yes. Thanks to Mike uh, Pillsbury for, uh, you did not hear my introduction to you, which I gave, but uh, my recap of that would be, once again, read the 100-year marathon, um, and you'll be much smarter. And um, Mike, I know that you, uh, in the Uber that I told the audience, um, had an accident, and I was making jokes about it. It felt like being oh. at the Yaoshaomo uh, ceremony with an empty chair next to you. So I'm yes. very happy that you're now here. <laughs> and um, I watched you online, by the way, from the car. Oh, so I've seen the whole panel. Well done. Discussion. And, and I know that I think you have among some of your things here that uh, you had a United Front manual or something that was given to you in, in, in China way back when. So that clearly whetted my appetite uh, among many other reasons for having you on the panel. But uh, great to have you here. And uh, please join in. Thank you. I just came to praise your report. Uh, and Bethany's articles in foreign policy. Um, I have actually been to the United Front Work Department and been entertained for an hour uh, and given this book I, you mentioned just now. It's a huge book. They're very proud of their work. They obviously have a secret clandestine side, but they also have a public side. Um, the woman who headed it then is named Liu Yandung, Mm, yeah, I've met uh, her she, as well. She has white hair now. Uh, she became the highest ranking woman in Chinese politics as a Politburo member. Uh, she met last Sept September, I think it was, with Rex Tillerson and Carol DeVos to sign a large number of agreements to continue educational exchanges, cultural exchanges, the massive National Science Foundation scientific exchanges with China. So you can profit by being a good United Front Work Department director. You can move up. Um, I would supplement your report and maybe Bethany's, encourage Bethany to look at something in addition to the United Front. They're not the only sort of clandestine arm of the Chinese Communist Party. And you use this wonderful word in the report, and I heard you just today say it again, if I have this right, Western enablers. Right? I think it's important to do what you've done, and Bethany has to look back at what the Chinese structure is and what they're trying to do. 
but it, you can learn more from looking at the Western enablers. And one way to do that is something that uh, was done in, in the State Department in the 1980s and used to be done by the U.S. Information Agency before it was closed down uh, in terms of public diplomacy. Try to find out the themes that are the most important, in this case, to Beijing. What are the themes that they care about? And then how do they go about countering um, opposition to those themes? The Western enablers are crucial to this, not just because they might say friendly things that China wants to hear, but they also help the Chinese understand what is the debate that we're trying to influence. And I'm sorry for the mild criticism, but you, you could have had in your next, you say you know, more research on this, and Bethany too, if you start looking at these themes, you'll find that they change over time. It's not just deny platform for the Dalai Lama. That's a pretty old one. Um, and the themes are often related, in the case of America, to what the White House is doing. And they often, they can change as much as every day. And there's an easy $55 a year way of getting these themes. You don't have to have the CIA or NSA or others in the government help you. You pay $55, you can have delivered to your house China Daily. And you will find on the front page key themes, then inside you will find editorials written often by a think tank scholar back in China. And the themes are often extremely, are often brilliantly done. Today's theme is about a White House document released last night online. There are two parts of it. One is called How China's Economic Aggression Threatens the Technologies and Intellectual Properties of the United States and the World. In this appendix to it, on page two, there's a color chart. Six categories of Chinese aggression here, and then all the techniques used. Today's theme is that this is a lie. China has no economic aggressive intention. It certainly isn't coordinated by the Chinese government or party. And I had the good fortune of being in Beijing on Sunday, two days ago. Two of the guests were former United Front Work Department deputy directors. And they had something to say. They somehow knew in advance this was coming out. And they explained to the group, there were 80 Chinese present from think tanks all over China. They actually, in front of me and other Americans, they gave instructions to the think tanks to focus on countering this new White House effort, which has about 10 themes in it. One of them is there's a coordinated Chinese economic strategy that the state-owned enterprises are part of it, that influencing political campaigns is part of it, the media is part of it. So you should be asking yourselves, what exactly is it that might be true in these White House studies? There was one back in March 21st as well, put out by USTR. Um, I see some two or three familiar faces in the audience here. I won't identify them because I think they're naturally shy. but. The US government has gone through an effort in the past year to rethink its strategy toward China. I think it bubbled up from below. I don't think it had, it had something to do with President Trump, but not too much. It was really 
already underway. But the themes are worth thinking about. One of them is China is a normal country just like America. And you find this a lot. Another theme is certain Americans, most American China experts, understand China correctly, but there are a few who are really good and they should be paid attention to. Usually the number one is Henry Kissinger. Now, he's written 15 books, Secretary of State, enormous authority, admits himself in his most recent book on China, doesn't know Chinese, didn't write about China ever until he went there. But he has deep enthusiasm for US-China parallel work forever into the future. So you often find Henry Kissinger invoked, I would use that term, not quoted, invoked, almost as a religious figure in China. Henry Kissinger could be asked by our press any one of the themes. He carried a message, according to the New York Times, for President Trump just after the election. So our President Xi came back. There's nothing illegal about that. I'm sure he bought his own airplane ticket. But what a gift he is, in terms of your word, enabler. One of our most prestigious diplomatic thinkers of all time is deeply, deeply committed to the kinds of things you're objecting to. So we have to be very careful. By the way, Zbigniew Brzezinski, my teacher at Columbia, identical. The two of them used to compete for who could be more of a champion of US-China relations. So the enablers in our society tend to be highly authoritative and not be criticized. It's another technique. None of that is in your paper, in your report. So if, suppose you're an FBI agent and you're assigned to enforcing election law or looking for intelligence operations on American campuses or any one of a number of topics you raise, Bethany's raised too. While you're a young FBI agent, and I've met more than one of them, if you're told Henry Kissinger and Zbigniew Brzezinski are two greatest thinkers, and you read their work on China, it's very hard to start getting upset about these kind of Chinese activities, unless the law is clear. That leads me to my last point. It seems to me, of your recommendations, the most important involves legislation. Yes, it'd be nice if the NSC would do a survey. Perhaps they already are. But there's already some legislation introduced. You mentioned Marco Rubio's. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's others on the Democratic side. There's a growing concern with China. But it's, in some ways, the enablers against the rethinkers. And the rethinkers have really very little resources to reach the public compared to the enablers. So when you asked about, doesn't America do the same thing? I would say if you compared the effectiveness, our operations to influence China ought to be compared with theirs to influence us. And I'm afraid it's roughly 10 to 1 in favor of the Chinese, partly because we have an open society, partly because we don't try. And I'll give you one example in the economic area. There is a debate in China going back at least 20 years on bird in the cage, 
sort of Stalinist economic policies versus a totally free market. 1,600 Chinese economists wrote a letter one time to attack a guy because he got a Cato Award. His name is Mao Yushu, more open market. The other side also exists. There's reason to believe Liu He, the very man who comes from China to negotiate, is one of the reformers. They wrote a book called China 2030, Control the State-Owned Enterprises, Open the Markets More, whole series of recommendations. They lost. President Xi has gone with the more Stalinist-type economists. You will look hard to find any American discussion of this debate, let alone when Cato gave the award to the reform economist who's 82 years old. He came here. You know what happened back home? They shut down his website and they closed his institute. Another example is so-called constitutionalism. It's a big debate. Should, we, should the Constitution and judges be above the Communist Party or below it? She went both ways and decided against the Constitution. One advocate, Beijing University Law School, wrote a lot about it. He suddenly wrote his farewell message. I'm not posting it anymore, he said. It's too sensitive. Coverage in our media, very thin. So could we influence their debates? Could we find, to borrow your word, uh, Jonas, could we find enablers in Beijing who wouldn't go to jail, but they'd be able to debate openly? That's what I think ought to be studied next, is can we adopt some of these very successful techniques ourselves in China, number one. Number two, can we change our laws so that some of this activity becomes illegal? So the young 30-year-old FBI, let's say she's a lady agent, female agent. She is much clearer in her mind. If I see someone doing this, I better start a law enforcement case against them. I think today it's still unclear what is the Foreign Agent Registration Act requirement. There's a whole series of uh, areas where one bill could change this with bipartisan support. So is that what you wanted me to do today? Praise your report, praise Bethany's articles, point out the next steps. <laughs> tell about your meetings with United Front. And it's been great. Am I? Tell you about United Front. These are real people, and, and they're very proud of what they do. Um, and I advocate attending their meetings, as long as you're thinking, what are the themes here that I'm being told today? By the way, another theme. Everybody in Tibet is very happy. China Daily has quite a few stories each week. Yeah. Some new breakthrough. They, now Tibetan cuisine is served in restaurants in Lhasa. It's very traditional. Here the so, Uyghurs are really happy, too. The Uyghurs are very happy, too. Very yes, happy. there's quite a few stories on that. But that's really internal Chinese human rights. What interests me is the themes they apply to America. And one of them is, don't start a trade war because you Americans will lose. I heard a lot of this on Sunday in Beijing. You will lose. We are very strong. At the same time, they often have another theme called the China Collapse Theory. China is very weak. We're still very poor. Don't worry about us. We're not going to overtake you. We may even collapse soon. And so they have enablers writing books and articles on the China Collapse Theory. Some predictions have been within one year, China will collapse. Now, is this a genuinely held view, or is this a very convenient theme to tell the enablers to repeat on TV?
Thanks a lot, Mike. Um, really good point. If I try to pick up on, on those first of sort of what we tried to do with our red spectrum was actually really that of saying where is it sort of law enforcement, where does it come out into, and how do you also sort of link the two that maybe after this Falun Gong demonstration that passed through yes. all day, if somebody is beaten up tonight in Chinatown, it could be linked to that. And it's that sort of thinking that also needs to come in with FBI and local police as well, of, of sort of knowledge of that some of these things can be linked to something much bigger than just a sort of a brawl mm -hmm. in, 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 in Chinatown. So I think that's an important aspect as well. Says Bethany agrees with you. And, and, and also why, um, I mean, we were, um, I lost on, on that one. Okay, but on the second one. Would you like to visit United Front, by the way? I'd be happy to I, introduce I you. Yes, I, I, I mean, I've met Liu I'm Yandong. sure they know about you. I've met Liu Yandong. In this well. report. <laughs> I'm sure they're very pleased and about Bethany. it. Bethany, I'm sure they know about Bethany um, too, do you think? I think I'm on a lot of lists. <laughs> On the enablers, th those are really good point and good examples. One of the ones we had as example in, in the report is um, Steve Wynn, the casino magnate that gives precisely the same type of, uh, that you described, that gives a letter to Donald Trump, which is basically comes from the Chinese government about extraditing Go Wynn. Mm -hmm. And that's, that has that same element of triangular that the ones you're actually looking at are sort of the best lobbyists for, uh, or intermediaries are really ne not necessarily the ones that are registered for Huawei or for the sort of, mm -hmm. but are third parties that have business uh, transactions with China or or sort of privileged relationship and do these sort of, and that that's really where China has some extreme strength in in, in our our systems by by using these sort of vehicles. Could we do the same? I mean, I would say from my own experience, you have uh, much longer China experience than me, but I mean. Uh, that was part of what a lot of um, Western governments have tried for, for years. I mean, when um, I was heading the, the China unit in the Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs, we were having sort of human rights projects that were often sometimes disguised a little bit of, of trying to do these things, help village elections when they picked up uh, work with the CAS uh, on legal reform, how you could do procedure law reforms, how you could sort of change China uh, fr from the inside. Uh, we even did it in Tibet, where supporting bilingual education as a way of, of, of even touching and sort of on. I, my conclusion now would be that, that unfortunately, I mean, China managed to change us way more than we managed to change them. That doesn't mean we have to think intelligently still about how we, we do these things, but, but uh, my depressing conclusion would be that they, they have been, you said 10 to 1, uh, which I think is, is pretty accurate, way more successful, and that, uh, that a lot of these um, uh, programs we've seen sort of gra gradually run into the sand by, by all sort of types of reform initiative in China, uh, basically being sort of blown away. And now we have a sort of one man system almost on top of the party now with, with Xi Jinping. Uh, well, an, old, an old theme that's been retired, I'm afraid. I asked Bethany this as a question. An old theme was democracy is coming to China. It's in the villages right now. Mm. And they took people. I said, yes, I'd like to see you know, an election. Yeah, sure, same here. And they spread the th idea that this election system is going to be, and Jimmy Carter helped them, by the way. Jimmy Carter provided money from the Carter Institute or Foundation to draft the manual 
for how to conduct these village elections. And the, the, the theme then was, first we're gonna do these elections at the village level, then they'll go to the county, then they'll go to the state, and then wink, wink, we'll have an American style you know, primary with two parties and we'll elect our president. So I can't tell you how many Americans love this, including me. So I went to the village, with him was Orville Schell, by the way, very famous China journalist, and some others. We learned in the village quite a shock. If I'm running against Bethany to be village mayor, I can't say Bethany's for raising taxes and she's for or against some other national policy. No national political platform or policy can be discussed in the election. I can say I will, I'm a nicer person than Bethany. Please vote for me. Or I can say I will work harder I'll work till 8 p.m. every night to help the village. Bethany's kind of lazy. That's okay. But you I cannot say anything. So it's not a real election. <laughs> also, can you go on television in the village? No. You can have a certain size assembly where you have a megaphone and say these kinds of things. So is that really a Western election? Obviously not. It's a joke. I think that you're framing this. This was pushed for a long time. It's, it's been dropped now. But there is a, st a story now that, well, we are having secret ballots on the Central Committee. And so-and-so got, you know, didn't get a majority. But is this really true? It doesn't fit with the story of Xi Jinping being president for life. So I, I would say some narratives or themes are retired after a while. New ones are created. It's a brilliant, dynamic process. I admire the Chinese for what they're doing to influence democracies around the world. Bethany. Sorry for going on so long. No, I'm older I, generation. I think that the, the, talking about themes is a really easy, is a really good way to translate United Front work because that's what they do. They try to control the narrative: what people say, what people can't say, what we think. Um, and I think that we can we can you know, bring this back to the discussion, the, the discussion of the discussion of United Front work, um, which is you know what's going to be the narrative that China uses to push back against this conversation we're having right now and against this report specifically. Um, you know what's going to be report. productive, mm -hmm. and you know what from what we've seen in Australia and from what I've seen you know pushed back towards my or, my own articles, there's going to be you know, two or three or four um, themes. A big one is going to be racism. This is racist. Your report yes. is racist. <laughs> what is gonna, that, that was very functional in Australia. We all are three white people up here. I am. But Belinda Lee is a co-author. <laughs> really? Yeah, Belinda Lee, yeah. She's not here today. No. <laughs> um, in spirit. The, so the, the, the racist theme, as you say, has been very, um, that's been very productive in Australia for, I think, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, here, I think what's really going to resonate is McCarthyism, to ah, say this yes, is McCarthyism. Yes, yes. And I, when I wrote an article uh, last month or two months ago about Chinese Communist Party cells that were being set up on the campuses of U.S. universities to spy on Chinese students, um, I was called McCarthyist. And I thought, the Chinese Communist Party is literally setting up cells on the campuses of universities to spy on students. What, should I say that differently? Should I say they're, ha they're forming happy clubs? Like, what should I say, you know? So I think that's gonna be also very, very resonant. And it really muddies the waters, because, especially as a journalist, because, you know, if I'm writing an article, and I, look, I need to get both sides. I need to reach out to the Chinese community and see if they think that this bill going through Congress or this, you know, statement by this politician, does that make them worry about racism? Because racism is a real issue, especially in our political climate right now. Um, who can I reach out to? 
because so many Chinese organizations in the U.S. Are, have links to the United Front, and of course they're going to say that it's racist, and I find that to be very difficult to deal with. Well, it's a good theme, isn't it, for China? Yeah. It's a very good theme. Yeah. Demonize you as either a racist or McCarthyist or both. <laughs> By the way, I learned a new theme on Sunday. It's not new for the Chinese, they told me, but I'd heard it for the first time. It's called Shi Jie Renlei, Global Humanity. And it goes with a set of sub-themes. Humanity together controlled, learned how to control fire, defeated lions and tigers, created new technology. Today, there are some countries seeking hegemony who are protectionist and closed, have closed doors. But other countries, like China, want to help all of humanity. Are you waiting for an example? The Americans have a lung cancer cure, but the price is very high. In India, it's only 10% of the price. But the Americans are oppressing India over the price of this lung cancer drug. Why? Because the Americans today, not Trump, the Americans, don't care anymore about they don't care about mankind. We, of course, in China, we're poor and backward, but we do our best to help all of mankind. And several of the think tank people repeated this at the conference at apt moments during the day. I thought, wow, I belong to not just a racist country, but a selfish bastard country that's trying to make people die of lung cancer. And one of the th think tank guys even said that. We ought to total up the number of lung cancer deaths because of the American uh, trade policy. I thought, wow, that's good. Great. It could be 100 themes. I wanted to, um, my last remark before opening it up to the audience, so um, be ready to, uh, with your questions. Then we'll have people go around uh, with, uh, with the mics. And, um, yeah, let's uh, let's do that now. There's a question down here. Whoa, that was a lot of questions. So we start down here, and we'll let can, the Chinese embassy go first. Uh, can move, buddy. <laughs> yeah, down here. Yeah, let me actually. What I was going to add on, on the last remarks about racism and the themes. What we'd actually in the introduction earlier. Otherwise, a big shout out and a thanks to our uh, to great editors here at uh, at Hudson. That, with that actually got edited out, we'd actually put in a sort of a disclaimer already saying this report is going to be called racist by mouthpieces of the Chinese Communist Party, and here is why it's not. And then sort of given to sort of counteract it already because that was that is an expected uh, theme. Um, I did notice that it did not appear in this final draft. Yes, it's uh, it, 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 it somehow got uh, got slashed, and now when I hear you on the panel, I'm actually sort of regretting that editorial uh, decision. But um, I forgot to give you the message. Uh, the guy you wrote the article about, the curious Mr. Wong, mm -hmm. who you say was uh, United Front connected, he was at the conference. Right. He walked up to me. He said, "You know, I really liked that article. It gave me a lot of face in China." Could you say hello to Jonas for me? So I <laughs> best wishes from the curious Mr. Wong. The curious case of Mr. Wong. He yes. has his own think tank. Yes, I know, and it's independent. Really big. It's independent, even though it says long well, further down on his CV that he, that he's also affiliated with the United Front. Uh, but yes, that, that's a, of course the definition of independent. Um, down here. Okay. Uh, thanks, uh, Robert Schroeder with International Investor. There's a power couple in Washington I didn't hear mentioned today. Mitch McConnell and his wife, Elaine Chow. Um, 
if you want to have direct influence on the United States, there's no better target than the Senate Majority Leader. Any comments? Let's take a couple of more questions. Oh, one over here, and then one in front. Let me, yeah, the rest of you get up your hands, then I can see as many we can, one there. I'm uh, Peter Humphrey, I'm an intel analyst and a former diplomat. I'm always blown away that we miss out on major opportunities to, to play these games. So one is the simple fact that China has no allies that would actually fight side by side with it, with the possible exception of North Korea and Myanmar. Second of all, uh, a theme. An another one would be uh, uh, energizing the Kazakhs to know what's being done to Kazakhs inside China. How do we miss that opportunity? About 10% of those so-called Uyghurs that are being thrown into education camps are Kazakhs. My big concern is um, students, Chinese students in the US on a couple of grounds. It's still shocking to me that Chinese students can study aeronautics, uh, artificial intelligence, and any other, a dozen other fields. And every Chinese student you meet, if you get to know them, eventually will admit that there's somebody in his collective who kind of watches over the brethren. This is two white people so far, two white men. <laughs> I have to object. And, and I'm wondering why a Chinese we person or a female, please ask the next question. I'm wondering why we don't um, uh, sort <laughs> of shine one. a light on those guys and give them the bums rush off our campuses. Good questions. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to ask question. I uh uh I, I think part of uh the problem here is yeah. right. Hey, what's your name? Oh, my name is Yi Ting, Yi Ting Chou. I'm from Taiwan. And uh, uh I, I think problem part of the problem here is that uh because Chinese propaganda is so successful and according to an investigator investigation down to American people. Uh, American people's feeling to to China is become more positive than previous years. So uh, we, uh, we can imagine that if you, uh, America want to pass some law to uh, regulate uh, more Chinese propaganda or influence, it might be difficult to get people's advocate, to get people's support and uh, uh, because uh, here, oh, Americans have very little knowledge about China, uh, also because their information is closed in their country. So how, how, how do you deal with this kind of problem? Thank you. Is anybody here from the United Front Work Department who would like to ask a question? <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. fair. Unfortunately not. I'm Simon. I interned here at the Hudson Institute. Um, thank you for being here. So you've mentioned, obviously, that China has undergone a coordinated uh, campaign to upgrade its media influence campaign over the past couple years, but its success has been somewhat questionable. Um, CCTV's foreign news channel, which has rebranded itself as CGTN, most reports indicate that it has very low viewership in Western countries and is pretty much unknown outside of Chinese diaspora communities. You also mentioned China Daily. Um, an audit of its circulation in 2014 found that 94% of the co English language copies of China Daily uh, in European countries are being given away free because there is so little de demand for them. So I shouldn't um, pay $55 a year then? Yeah, my, <laughs> that's a, you're getting ripped off. That's, that's you're ripped off? From, from this, this Given these apparent failures, I guess my question is, and the argument is often made that in established <laughs> prosperous democracies, the Chinese authoritarian model holds less attraction. Mm. Would you say that 
Chinese media influence does represent an actual threat to established democracies, or is it more of the covert interference that we should be concerned about? Mm. Um, one last one here, and then we'll round up. So that... Thank you. Dion Edon from the Marine Corps Information Operations Center. Um, so last week at the... the... What Information Operations Center? The Marine Corps Information Operations Center. Okay. So last week, Seeing uh, High Cooperation Organization uh, issued had a media summit, and they issued their declaration on uh, international public opinion, uh, and they said, hey, we need to get discourse control so that we can put our righteousness and justice at the forefront of, uh, of the public opinion. One view of this is that the Chinese or the PRC and the CCP estimate that they are not succeeding in changing public opinion. And from the examples that we have here, it seems like they're doing a much better job at elite capture and influence uh, of agents of influence versus public opinion, especially when you look at Taiwan, backlash, uh, Australia signing on to our Indo-Pacific strategy and being a stalwart partner there. Um, so if that, would you give your opinions on that view and then also talk to some of the tactics that are more effective for the PRC and the CCP? And, um, and your thoughts about, for the ones that aren't effective, a recommendation of loudly complaining about those so they put their resources into the ones that aren't effective versus the ones that are. Great questions. Why don't we each take well, like one, uh, one uh, if I promised our guys over here to end more or less on time, so if each of us do one minute replies to Mike first and Bethany, and then I'll end. I would just mention two words. One is your word, which I love your phrase, elite capture. From my point of view, elite capture is vastly more important than changing public opinion in some vague way to be quote unquote pro-China. If I were giving money in China for operations, I would certainly focus on elite capture. And I would focus on daily theme changes, getting feedback, which is just what they're doing. But I would combine it with clandestine collection. I would not you know, think too much about New York Times articles. I would have a structural image. Who makes China policy in America? And I would have extreme clandestine collection against those 10 targets. I would delegate that not to the United Friend Work Department. I would delegate that to the proper experts, shall we say. Second, I would look at their influence networks. Who can come in to see them? Who, who do they read? Who influences them? Clandestine collection, but then I would use my open source access assets against that group as well. And I'd have a number, maybe 300. I would know specific media channels. But again, the themes have to be brilliant. They have to change quickly. I have to get feedback for how it works. And I believe, based on no good data, I believe this has been going on quite a while. They don't use certain techniques that they probably should. The Soviets used to put false classified documents with all the markings in cabinet secretaries' mailboxes in Europe about don't accept Pershings or cruise missiles on your territory because the Americans are going to do X with it. And only a few of the cabinet secretaries who received the false 
classified American documents actually came to the U.S. Embassy, knock on the door. Is this really true? Chinese don't do that yet. But this feedback loop approach, daily theme change, targeted audience, as you put it, elite capture, I think that's probably where most of the effort goes. I suspect of what Jonas called the 10 billion, I say 12 billion in my book, annual budget. I think a lot of that probably is wasted. So this answers some of the other questions as well. But again, it gets back to legislation because if our Foreign Agents Registration Act is real unclear as to what a foreign agent is, you know, if it gets something to value, tries to lobby, if I'm the FBI person, how do I measure something of value? How do I measure lobbying? Pretty tricky. If the law is clearer, it might produce some real prosecutions and certainly would make enablers think twice. I'm getting something of value and I'm influencing, as you put it correctly, elite capture. I would be vulnerable to arrest and prosecution and ruin. But that's something we haven't done. It's in the report. So that's, am I going over time, giving one answer to one question? Yeah, that's it. Bethany's a Marine, so it's extra time. <laughs> I would certainly agree that elite capture is an extremely uh, productive way for them to spend their time and money. I mean, I was just speaking a couple of weeks ago with a former uh, U.S. ambassador to Singapore, and he was he told me, um, you know, I just don't think the Chinese are interested in democracy. I don't I don't think democracy really, democracy really works with Chinese culture. And I said, well, what about Taiwan? And he said, well, Taiwan is small and it doesn't really work there. It's kind of embarrassing and like, you know, people will, you know, fight each other in the, the parliament and the legislative UN, executive UN or whatever. Uh, it doesn't really work. And I just don't think the democracy really actually works in China. And I told him, I said, you know, that's a, that's a CCP line, right? Like that's literal CCP propaganda that, you know, democracy doesn't work in China and Taiwan is really embarrassing and bad. You just literally, boop, right out of your mouth. Um, so I think that's very effective. But I also think if we're talking about sort of a, a lot of the um, behavior that we've been mentioning today, you know, uh, they put a lot of effort, a lot of what the United Front Works Department does is to try to guide and control overseas Chinese communities all around the world, basically everywhere. I, I haven't found a country yet where I haven't found this behavior. And it is extremely effective. Um, you know, on the topic of, of Chinese students, find me a Chinese student in America who feels that they can, you know, organize on pro-Taiwan independence, pro-Tibet, you know, pro-democracy pro in China. Find one Chinese student here who feels that they can do that safely and freely. You won't find any. Um, that's how effective the Chinese Communist Party is at conveying their ability to control to people living inside of this democratic country. Um, so I think that, you know, Ch Chinese overseas, overseas Chinese communities have been very curtailed. You know, their their rights, uh, as Jonas mentioned in the report, need to be restored to them. And I think that we we can you know make strides on that because it's just something that we have let completely fall below you know below our radar, fly below the radar. Um, so I think that's really effective. Uh, on the question of Mitch McConnell, I think more reporting needs to be done. Um, obviously, it's easy to read reports of that and, and see you know has, is this a case of elite capture? I don't know, and I think that we don't know. Like I, that's not publicly known, and more work needs to be done about how to counter propaganda. That's a really great question that goes to the heart of what is so troubling about United Front and other kinds of influence activities in the US because they take advantage of vulnerabilities in a liberal democratic system. We can't control speech. We don't do that for the most part. Um, 
You know, so if you have, you know, a person who is being told to say things by, by you know, the United Front Work Department or by, um, you know, someone connected to China, and they choose to say those things, can we control that? Or if they choose to vote, you know, if they have been mobilized to, to block vote um, by a, a, a Chinese community organization with ties to United Front, how do you, legislatively speaking, how do you stop that? How do you prevent a Chinese person or any, any person in the U.S., um, Chinese or otherwise, from listening to what's coming out of Beijing and voting along those lines. How do you stop that? It's, it's really difficult, but how do you counter it? I think that what we need to do is increase transparency so that people know where the messages are coming from. And right now, a lot of that work has simply not been done. So you know, again, an example of co-opted Chinese community organizations planting um, you know, basically fake public opinion in media in media articles by saying, you know, I represent the Chinese community and we think that, you know, U.S.-China relations are really important and we think that this kind of narrative is really dangerous and racist and, um, you know, there needs to be more transparency not to prevent them from saying those things, but to show uh, where that funding or where that influence is, what their, what their ties are. Um, and I'll leave it at that. Thanks. Uh, three points uh, I wanted to make. One on sort of legislation and FERA, LDA. We actually, which I didn't get to highlight uh, in it, so a plug for reading the, the report uh, for all of you uh, in the audience. We do have recommendations on that. One of them actually to sort of simplify and, and sort of combine the two, FERA and, and, and the LDA, uh, streamline the, the process, and, and of course also make much more sort of on the enforcement side of things as well. Um, Several of them right here. And Page there are several uh, legislation and, and then already we, introduced. We have um, our ideas in the recommendations. Then the question is, is the Chinese Communist Party attractive as, as one sort of the, and I don't think so. I mean, I don't think on the ideology, what really makes it effective in the, at home, it's basically now a Leninist party. So it's just a sort of uh, one, um, one party um, authoritarian uh, system, much less than a sort of uh, communist in the sense of sort of distributing uh, goods. And, um, and I think abroad, it's really the money uh, that makes sort of, the, that's the lubricant that makes also the elite ca capture uh, possible is the market access in China. It's, it's the sort of economic opportunity. That's what's attractive, not any sort of ideology any longer. Uh, then last on the media effect, I think it's right to point out that um, that probably a lot of this is particularly in established democracies relatively wasted off the sort of the blunt propaganda. Again, why the sort of the elite part of it of of uh, creating these sort of links with with uh, young leaders in business and media is much more important than than getting these um, sort of themes out in the Western public uh, opinion. I do think in fledging and sort of Halfway democracies, it probably has a much more effect. I saw an example recently from Cambodia. I noted down for uh, for research where this guy established sort of a new uh, media enterprise in Cambodia, and he said his aim is to make China look good in Cambodia. And you're like, okay, I wonder where your funding comes from. It's a low grade for sophistication. <laughs> yes, uh, and, something like that. And that's of course where when you don't have a system that doesn't have very established media freedom. Yes, then then this might work sort of sort of better than sort of the paid advertisement uh, supplement in um, in. Um, uh, but again, here what I also mentioned, if you look at those, for example, the paid advertisement supplement, what I'm most worried about is not the fact that that there is Chinese propaganda inside the Washington Post, is that the Washington Post gradually get uh, sort of used to having a huge part of its advertising budget is being paid by the Chinese government. So if they suddenly pull that at some point. 
because of coverage or something else, then you're certainly vulnerable, and it's at least a sort of board decision of how do we how do we handle that, and that's again sort of an example of that sort of parasitic relationship that gets built, and that's what's nefarious. Yeah, that's a great point, and it's same with Confucius Institutes. They they do they are concerning in, in numerous ways. But part of what's so concerning about them is that is the grip they have on universities. Uh, in the same kind of way that you mentioned, you know, maybe that could make the Washington Post vulnerable. Same with Confucius Institutes, it makes the universities vulnerable to, you know, threats. If you do this thing, we'll we'll withdraw our funding. Um, so that kind of thing. One word on enablers, whether it's when I mentioned Henry Kissinger and you mentioned Senator McConnell and uh, Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao, enablers in the United Front theory. This is what's in the book I'm going to show you. An enabler sincerely believes what he or she thinks. They're not bought. They're not uh, suborned somehow. The duty of United Front operations is to amplify their voice and play it back to the country to say, this is the correct view. Secretary Kissinger and Senator McConnell have broad, statesmanlike visions of the future. They are correct. And then pick out Jonas or Bethany and say they are, you know, not good. In fact, they haven't been to China for 10 years because we don't like them. They are freaks. And pretty soon, you can't remember exactly, but Kissinger and McConnell, brave statesmen, Bethany and Jonas, freaks. And over time, this works wonders. But notice what I'm describing. Very personal, very specific, and you play back authentic, true views in the target society, and you amplify them. It's brilliant. We don't do that. We didn't say, when the 1600 economists wrote the letter 12 years ago, as I say, no media reaction here at all. Like, who cares what 1600 Chinese economists write? So that's why I said it's 10 to 1 Chinese superiority in information operations, which they have earned. They're good at it. They take it seriously. And there's no real legal obstacle to it if they're careful. That's a good way um, to end. So thanks to the panel. Thanks to, to Mike. So thanks to Bethany for being here with me today for, for launching the report. Thanks to all of you for, uh, for being part of the discussion. and. Um, I hope you, uh, you get to, to read the report and continue uh, the debate. Thanks a lot. <laughs>